0: And welcome to the book of Judges, chapter 7 this evening. In our journey through the scriptures, we had kind of a space of a week, oh no, what have I done? Hold on a second. You say, could anything be worth whatever you're doing? All I need to tell you is it involves a stopwatch. (laughs) Heavy on the stop. Well, we had a little bit of a weak kind of... uh, gap between the last time we were together in our survey of the scriptures, and we had begun the account of the fifth judge of Israel by the name of Gideon, and we remember that the Midianites were coming annually to uh, make a foray into the land of Israel because of the sin of the children of Israel, God was using the Midianites as kind of a... um, means of his chastening and they would come in in gigantic numbers at about the time of the harvest uh, take all of the food that was being had been harvested or about to be harvested, and take all of that for themselves and then and the animals, and then destroy whatever was left over in order to keep the children of Israel in an impoverished and a powerless condition. Children of Israel repented of their sin; they cried out to God, which is the cycle of the Book of Judges, and asked for deliverance from the consequences of their sin and their decision making, and God proceeded to answer that prayer by attempting at least to raise up a judge by the name of Gideon. And when he finds Gideon, he finds Gideon in a wine press, which is basically a a rock, stone hole in the ground, and he's threshing wheat out of fear that even this small amount of grain, probably barley grain and not wheat, but he, th- that this grain wouldn't be discovered by the Midianites and that would also be taken away. And the Lord comes on the scene, the Lord Himself, and declares to Gideon in this particular condition, uh, declares him to be a mighty man of valor. And uh, and Gideon basically says, I think you got the wrong guy here. I'm in a hole threshing grain out of fear of the Midianites. I am not a mighty man of valor. But the Lord really does speak to Gideon and He speaks to us on the basis of what He knows He is going to make us into. It is not human potential thinking where I think through my own positive thinking I'm going to make myself into something great. God can look at us and say, what I'm going to add to your life Is is, I will add to your life what is necessary to do great things through you. So Gideon and the Lord are like on two entirely different pages because Gideon's got to catch up with the Lord, not because the Lord's in the remedial class and trying to catch up with Gideon. So Gideon is then called to tear down the altar to baal that's in his father's yard he's kind of a probably a temple priest there in in that village he does so and we come to the end of chapter uh... six here where gideon throws out a couple of fleeces just to make sure uh... that god is is really the one who's speaking to him and and leading him no need to do the fleeces but he did them and he had god's word which is the highest means of knowing god's will but god uh, yielded to him and and, uh, and bowed down as he, as he does in a, sometimes in our genuine weakness and and will meet with us there. And now we pick it up here now uh, as he's called Gideon to deliver the children of Israel from the Midianites. We come into the battle proper. Chapter 7, verse, verse 1. And then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley and every trip to Israel that we take we go to uh, this particular well of Herod. it's an established Uh, The location of this event is is established there in the land, and uh, so there's this well that comes up out of the, kind of out of the base of the mountain that runs all through the year, a good place to get water, and as they're sitting at the base of that, that hill or at the base of that mountain, the Valley of Jezreel, also known as the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, lies out before them, and this entire a uh, huge army of the Midianites is within view uh, of them. So we're talking about, we'll see a little bit later, 135,000 men have come in and with this invading the land. So here they are in this place, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. The children of Israel, as, as we're going uh, 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 have... Gideon has 35,000 children of Israel aligned with him to go to battle against the Midianites. The Midianites have 135,000. If I do the math, those are four to one odds. So when God says, you have too many people with you, um, you know, the solution to me for the situation is about 100,000 more children of Israel. So we're not short of we're, we're short of, of warriors for this particular this thing. So the Lord said, nope, you got too many for me to deliver the Midianites into your hands, even at four to one odds, and here's the reason why. Lest Israel claim for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God said, if I give the Midianites into your hand, even at four to one odds, you folks will take the glory. And he says, and in taking the glory, we take glory from God. And that's why I said, you'll claim, God said, you'll claim glory for, uh, for itself against me. You'll rob me of the glory. Now, one of the things that I love about this passage is because I don't view myself as any different from the children of Israel and no different from Gideon. But it, it speaks to us of how prone we are even when God does something in the face of overwhelming odds, to then take the glory for the good thing that He does, and to look at it and say, well, that was the result of my strength, or my wits, or my expertise, and or, you know, it would have just happened that way anyway. So what the Lord has to do, depending on how hard-headed we are, And wait a second, I'm getting a couple of names, just a moment here. (laughs) But seriously, depending on how hard-headed we are, I think we can really determine the depths of, of trials in our life. Sometimes if we look and say, God, how come everything has to be so hard with me? How come the odds always have to be impossible with every little thing that you do in my life? We might look at our life and see if we're the kind of person that will rob Him of glory or praise if He were to do it in less than impossible odds. The victory against the Midianites is a done deal. God is going to do it. That's not, there's no doubt about it, it's not up in the air. The only thing that is up in the air at this point in time is who will get the glory for the victory. And in order for God to get the glory, He has to put them in impossible circumstances. So that when they do get the victory, even they or we would look at it and say, I'm not touching that, God did all of that. I hope I'm not the only one that God has put regularly in that place. It's a miserable place to be. At that moment in time where the odds are impossible, you have the promise of God. And God, I just hate the fact that I'm going to be the first man in human history that proves your promises untrue. And, and we're in this whole kind of whining thing inside. And, uh, and, and so here's this place where all of that is mounted up against us in that way. And I forgot my thoughts. So anyway, you, head, you head out there and sometimes it's good and then sometimes... Uh, you do this, but anyway, it will come back to me in about five minutes. But we'll be on to a completely different point. But do uh, allow me just a moment here. For those of you who are listening to the tape, I am taking a moment at this moment to try and recover the point. Mm-hmm. 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 I'm not talking to God. These are voices in my head. This is it comforting, isn't it? Ah. Oh. Lost it again. The fact of the matter is, though, is when that kind of thing does happen, as miserable as it is at the moment, that when God does do that and He does this thing in our life where we look and say, I can't, we will never touch the glory for that in the light of what it is that God has done, those become some of the most precious memories in our Christian life. And so the Lord does that kind of thing. And God said, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid, so he's going to thin out the ranks, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. So he said, you got 32,000. Give the offer to everyone that anyone that's afraid of four to one odds, all of them can go home. And 22,000 of the people went home and 10,000 remained. It seemed like such a great idea. <laughs> you know, at this point, he's lost over two-thirds of my already small army. Now the odds uh, are 13 and a half to one. Now, the Lord is removing a certain kind of person here. He is removing the fearful soldier. And the fact of the matter is, as God looks at it, and whether it's a spiritual warfare or whether a step of faith that a church takes or a missionary team takes or whatever it might be, that fear in the heart of the people is a greater danger to his work than the enemy uh, itself. And so, uh, in accordance with the law of Moses that declared in the book of Deuteronomy, then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so faith is contagious among God's people. Get a group of people together and they are kind of could go either way, fear or faith. Put a couple of faith people in the middle of that. Mm, boy, they can, faith can be contagious and, and a good thing. Fear can do the same thing. Where they're right on the edge, put a couple of fearful people in there and, and they'll taint the whole thing toward fear. And so two out of three depart and the Lord doesn't have a problem at this moment in time at having them depart. But they still got too many people. Too many people. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Down, down to a, 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 a thousand here. And, uh, Ten thousand And so he said, "Here's a test. I want you to put this remaining ten thousand to. Bring them down to the water there at that well, and I'll test them for you there. God's going to put the ten thousand to a test. It's a silent test. Only God knows He's He's putting them through a a test." And he said, "Then and then." Then he instructed him, It will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, The same shall shall go with you, And whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, The same shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water, And the Lord said to Gideon, It's got 10,000 guys standing right here, And not one of them is afraid. These are tough guys. So fear hasn't driven them away. And they stand there. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Put them on one side. and Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, you put them on the other side. And so Gideon takes and he calls all the guys and he says, Listen, time to get a drink of water, everybody and uh, 10,000 men go to get a drink of water, and 9,700 of them put their head right down into the water and drink, and 300 get down on one knee, they scoop the water up in their hand, and they drink it. And the 300 get put on the other side. Now, Gideon had to know this was trouble. He had to know that God did not set up this test to remove 300 among the Ten thousand. So he figures this is who he's going to be left with. And then the number of those who, put, uh, who lapped, putting their hand to the mouth, was three hundred. But all the rest of the people uh, got down uh, on their knees to drink water. And then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. This really speaks to me, again in this same vein of how hard it is apparently for God to get glory for the miraculous things that He does in us and through us, that He has to reduce thirty-two thousand people down to three hundred in order for these people at the end of the battle against 135,000 to not touch the glory, speaks to me about our proneness to touch the glory. And so God, again, overwhelming uh, odds here. The test is a very, very interesting uh, one, and I think uh, the lessons from it are interesting. The test itself is interesting because God separated this 10,000 very, very brave soldiers. He separated them on the basis of how they got a drink of water. Now, I don't know in that part of the world or even today if there is a more ordinary activity that we do in the course of a day than the getting of a drink of water or a glass of water. It's one of the most ordinary events in life. But how we handle the ordinary in life is a revelation uh, of even more about me than how I handle the extraordinary in life. If God tells me, listen, Damien, I want you to do He gives me a test that's like extraordinary. You know, I'll brace myself for it. I'll get myself ready for it. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, do everything that I can to shine in it. But, but what we really, really are deep down inside of us is revealed not in extraordinary times, but in how we conduct ourselves in the handling of the most ordinary things in life. And the Lord chose men who were sober and vigilant and watching and waiting, even while engaged in the ordinary in life. They considered themselves to be on duty, even while engaging in the most ordinary acts of life. I think that sometimes we can tend to view uh, what is these 300, they're known as Gideon's army, but we can tend to think of them solely in terms of their, their number. And we, think, we can tend to think that the great lesson of this is that God can deliver a large number of, of the enemy into a small uh, number of God's people. He can do that. That just doesn't happen to be the lesson of, of this passage. I remember one time when we were new Christians, a band came to the church that we were attending, and it was called Gideon's Army. And I love the name, and one of the reasons they explained related to picking the name of Gideon's army was they looked at it solely on a numerical side of things. And that's great as far as it it goes. But this wasn't just 300 kind of anybody's out there. It was a small army made up of a certain kind of person. It was a person who was watching and waiting in the midst of warfare, no matter what they did in life. The applications for us as Christians, of course, I think is fairly obvious, and that the Bible teaches that we are in a warfare that never ceases. It's a spiritual warfare. And the Bible calls us to be watching and waiting and vigilant and sober, even in conducting ourselves in the ordinary in life, as we are engaged in this spiritual battle all around us. Jesus said, Matthew 24, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. It was a silent test. Only God knew that it was, was going on, and, uh, but it was going on. God chooses His army uh, uh, on the basis not only of the quantity, but there is a quality issue in all of this. And the qualities that God is looking for in this spiritual warfare that we're called to is the same as those days, and that is faith rather than fear. God does not drive our decision making as Christians on the basis of fear of man or fear of circumstances. He leads us by his Holy Spirit and his word. So the qualities he's looking for is faith and also watchfulness. And he says, all right. Give me 300 men with those qualities, and I'll add everything to them to assure the victory. And so, verse 8, the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and remained and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Remember, as they're taking this test and they're getting the drink of water, putting their head down, bringing it up, Out in front of them, this particular well is at a high point in the valley. They could look all the way out and see the enemy. They could see the army against them. So, again, it's this whole military imagery. They were watching and waiting in the middle of this threat. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp. For I have delivered it into your hand, the camp of the Midianites. But if you're afraid to go down, and evidently he was because he's going to take the Lord up on this, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, what they're talking about in the camp, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened, your faith, to go down against the camp. So here is Gideon and... He offers these fleeces in the earlier chapter. Lord, if you're really in this, let me put a fleece out and the ground be dry and the fleece be wet. And then he says, oh boy, I wonder if that always happens. I, you know, flunked uh, uh, air in school or whatever, humidity, weather, whatever. you. You know what I'm saying. So he said the next day, all right, well, let's just, the, the ground be wet and the fleece be dry. So he's, he's, he's trying to encourage his faith with these fleeces. The fact of the matter, is, do you realize that God wants us in his will even more than we want to be there? God wants us successful in his plan for our life even more than we want to be successful. And when the Lord recognizes that He is calling us to something that is difficult for our faith, He will choose the means by which He encourages our faith. And so that's what He does. All along He had intended to encourage Gideon's faith, but Gideon should have waited for the Lord to do it His way. And so now the Lord does it. I'm going to take you into the camp, Gideon. You want to know what the real status of the battle is? I'll let you come close to the camp and hear what they're thinking about you. You're afraid of them? i got news for you. They are terrified of you. Not because you're the little guy with the wine press and the grain. They're afraid of you because I have put a supernatural fear on them. I think it's good for us to recognize that when God is working and calling us to do something, we we do in a step of faith, we can e- experience fear, but to also remember God's working both ends of a situation. And so He is, he is making the, the ones that he, God is calling us to be involved in, to expand His kingdom against or whatever it might be, God is taking and... He is messing with their heads, messing with their lives supernaturally, whatever he has to do. All we're are, are aware of so often is what we're feeling and we don't realize God's working both ends of this thing. All I have to do is just listen to him and obey what he's telling me and trust he's working out he's working all the different sides of this. And so this was what God invited them to do. They went down, verse 11, with, he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So the edge of the camp, and they're listening. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sand of the seashore in multitude. And then Gideon, and when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion right where they came and here's his dream that he told his friend he said I've had a dream and to my surprise a loaf of barley bread now barley was the most base grain that you could have in those days if you had a good wheat crop you fed barley to the animals it was animal food But this was the staple of Israel. This barley loaf represents Gideon, because he's a a weak vessel in God's hands, represents Israel because of their impoverished condition. And and so this is the imagery that's, that's here. He said, to my surprise in this dream, a loaf of barley bread just come tumbling down the hillside into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent, and it struck the tent. And as a result, the tent fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Now, do not think of a $60 tent that you buy at Big Five. We're talking about tents... That required multiple men to put together steel stakes or metal stakes or wooden stakes and pegs all the way around to have a little barley loaf. And don't think of a nice big loaf of French bread. That's not what it was. When they talk about loaves in the Bible, they're talking about buns, little tiny things. So to have a loaf of a, a, a barley bun come down and hit one of these tents, and the tents to collapse. I mean, it's just inconceivable that 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 would happen. And, And he not only received the dream, but the interpretation of it. And he said, his companion rather, answered with the interpretation, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. The whole camp is absolutely terrified of Gideon. He's over there and he's, you know, shaking a worried about it. And God has put a supernatural fear on on Israel's uh, enemies. And I think if we knew how fearful uh, God's enemies are, that we would be go on the offensive. We might be a little more bold than we are. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worship the Lord and he returned to the camp of Israel and he said arise for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand it produced the faith that God knew he needed to have and he divided the 300 men into three companies of 100 and here's what he armed them with he put a trumpet into every man's hand uh, and then gave each one an empty pitcher clay pot and then also torches to put inside of the pitchers. Okay. I was okay with the the 300 versus the 135,000. But where are the uh Uzis? <laughs> I mean, this is what they're going to go into the battle. Again, it's it's so wild. God can call us to do crazy things in terms of the flesh and the natural. Again, it's, it even tells us even more the links that God has to go to to get glory for the work that He does through His people. It's a very, very odd um, uh, weaponry that they were equipped with. And Gideon said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, which was 10 p.m., just as they had posted the watch, and so these three companies of a hundred, they're kind of set up in, in proportionally around around the camp, and and uh, this is the time they're changing the watch. There's confusion a little bit, and and all that's happening is a result of of the change of the watch. And then the 300 blew the trumpets. They broke the pitchers that were in their hands, so they make this. Uh, incredible noise uh, and then all of a sudden the, uh, the torches are out the three companies blew the trumpets broke the pitchers and then they uh, held the tr- torches in their left hands the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon so ten o'clock at night now remember there isn't like the ten o'clock news on in those days so you went to bed when the sun went down so these people are pretty ready, probably that time of, of the year, you know, seven, eight o'clock, they've settled in. Most of the camp is asleep except for who's having to trade off related to uh, 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 the, the watch and all. So the camp isn't all awake and everything and, and uh, playing checkers or things like that. There's no light for it and, and, and they're all asleep. So they make this terrible noise with the breaking of the pots and, and then you see this a sea of torches all around the camp and all of these horns blowing and typically when an army would invade at night almost no one uh, fought at night in the ancient world but when they would invade at night not everyone would be carrying a trumpet not everyone would be carrying a torch so when they see three hundred torches they hear three hundred trumpets the idea is this army uh, must be absolutely gigantic to have that number uh, carrying these kinds of things. And so they, they're under the illusion they're being attacked from every conceivable uh, direction and that thousands and thousands of, uh, of uh, men are, are falling down on them uh, in the camp. The effect of all of this upon the Midianites, every man stood in his place all around the camp. So they jump up. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. So the first thing they did is they froze in fear, and, and then they began to, to uh, fear, uh, flee, uh, crying out in, in fear. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord, here's the Lord fighting for them. He, listen, he's going to call 300. He's going to add whatever's necessary to make them successful. Whatever He calls us to, it would be the same way. So the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. They woke up. They hear all of this racket going on. There's a supernatural fear in their lives. They just start to pull out their sword and start hacking people in all uh, directions and basically slaughtering one another. And then the army fled to Beth Acacia toward uh, Zerara, as far as the border of Abel, uh, mehola by Tabeth. And so they head back out in the direction that they came fleeing for their lives. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, all Manasseh, tribes of Israel, and they pursued the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all of the mountains of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites, seize them from the watering places as far as Beth, Barah, and the Jordan. And then all the men of Ephraim gathered together, and they seized the watering places as far as Beth, Barah, and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, named after his death, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb, which was apparently the location of his death, and they pursued Midian uh, Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And so, basically, once the army began to flee, uh, Gideon called for reinforcements among uh, all of the other tribes to then now join them in this battle, and they came alongside, and a, a great victory was begun. Now in chapter 8, uh, the men of Ephraim, and uh, they came then to Gideon, and they said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. And their complaint that they're, notice the repetition of us, us. But their complaint is against Gideon is, hey, you set this whole thing up. You excluded us. You just involved these 300 and you did it your way so that you could get all of the glory and all of the recognition. That's the accusation that they're bringing. You didn't allow the tribe of Ephraim to get a cut in the glory of this battle. And that's the accusation they're making against him. They could not be more wrong about Gideon than they are. Gideon did not want to be in the battle. It wasn't like Gideon said, Yes, I listen, Lord, 32,000, way too many. Let's get rid of the fearful ones. Let's get rid of the ones that don't know that they're in a battle. I am eager to enter into this battle in the natural with merely 300. Gideon was called... Afraid that he'd lose, you know, a bushel of grain. So the accusation is unfair against him in terms of who he was. It's all also unfair in that the, what they're complaining against is God's plan. That plan for victory was not Gideon's plan. It was God's plan. So the, these men of Ephraim, we're going to see a little bit later, they have a very... Uh, Ugly habit of showing up after all the hard work is done and then whining about something. And, and so that's what they do here. What about us? What about. It's just pride and it's just selfishness and it's just greed. I mean, here you got this great victory. They should have just been celebrating it with Gideon. Man, you are too much how God used you here and and all. And instead, they want to get a fight over who's going to get the glory for it. God said, That's why He cut this group out. So they they want to get all of that. Now, so they they really, really get into. Gideon's face uh, face on all of this now it, it is funny how nice we can be to one another as God's people while we're in the thick of the battle but as soon as the battle is over now we've got a victory got a little time on our hands a little discretionary time and then we want to use it to fight one another that's what they do Now, that might be the kind of a situation, too, where we might look in our lives and say, Lord, why does it seem that you always keep me in a very elevated state of spiritual warfare? He could look and say, because every time I give you some relief, you're ready to fight Christians. And I'd rather tie up a few of the demonic horde around you and at least give some relief to somebody else because their numbers are finite than have you get some relief in the spiritual warfare and... Take on everyone that you want to have a complaint about. So, I mean, it's worth thinking about Uh, anyway. God's not giving me any names on that, but it can happen. And so they, they reprimanded him sharply. And so Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer, which is the tribe of Gideon? He said, Listen... We did the heavy lifting and all. I mean, we brought in the big uh, crop or the big, you know, uh, harvest of the grapes. But man, you came in after us and you got the choice grapes. I mean, you grabbed, uh, you got the kings. God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, uh, Oreb and Zeb. What was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him was subsided when he said that. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Now, you can read this and look at it. It's a study in leadership. And uh, I noticed that somebody this morning had a Bible. It was a John Maxwell study Bible. I'd never seen one of those before, but he does all this leadership stuff. So it would be interesting to see what his notes are on all this. But it is interesting in terms of a leadership style. You can look at it and say, wow, I mean, Gideon should have got in their face and gave him what for and looks like he backs down here and maybe Gideon's a little wimpy. He's not. We're going to see in just a few minutes here, this is a very, very strong man who knows how to take care of himself. But evidently in this situation, I, I personally believe that he, he is receiving a leading of the Holy Spirit here. That at this moment in time with these people, this is not a time to fight these people. God is going to put the men of Ephraim in their place one day under Jephthah. And Jephthah is going to clean their clock on God's behalf. But that was for another age in the history when they pull this whole thing again. That was not God's plan for Gideon. And Gideon was wise enough to know this is what he was called to focus on. He had a lot on his plate right now, and he needed to stay focused on that and let God take care of the Ephraimites. And so there, there is this beautiful tactfulness to his leadership, but I think there's also a supernatural element to it where a leader must learn and hear the Lord on what battles to enter into and what battles were not intended to be in because God is going to take care of those through another person. And so he just kind of uh, moves out of the way and uh, and lets this thing not turn into a major division while they're in the middle of a great, great victory. And when Gideon, verse 4, came to the Jordan, he and the 300 uh, men, hadn't lost one yet, who were with him, they crossed over the Jordan River, so they've left Israel proper, now heading into uh, the, where the two and a half tribes uh, settled on the other side of the Jordan River, modern day Jordan, so they're, they want to they, they get the fullness of the victory here, so... They, they haven't wiped out the Midianites. They haven't given them kind of a death blow so that they don't come back the next year and impoverish the people. And so they crossed the Jordan River, still in pursuit of them, but the battle has gone on long enough that they're completely uh, exhausted. And so if you've ever been in that place where you've just exerted yourself for hours, and I suppose there's nothing like a, an actual battle where you're fighting for your uh, life and death to uh, it, it, the exhaustion found in that. But here they are exhausted. They desperately need food. And uh, and Gideon makes a request, verse 5, of the men of Succoth. He said, please just give us some loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted and I'm pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of uh, Midian, and so he just makes a request, just give us something to sustain us physically so we can finish God's victory here, so we don't have these people pillaging us anymore year in and year out, and, and so uh, this is what he, he's asking, we want to break their backs, and we need some food to be able to do that, and, and so that's the request that was made, and the leaders of Sukkoth, we're talking about Jews, they said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now or the, in your hand that we should give bread to your army? They refused to supply bread to their Jewish brethren. And, and uh, the, the refusal really takes the form of a mocking. And so they kind of taunt Gideon and said, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Or hey, where you know you, you haven't won anything yet. You've had a pretty good victory, and, and so they still questioned Gideon's ability to defeat the Midianites. And their concern was that even though 120,000 of the 135,000 Midianites had been destroyed or incapacitated, dead and wounded, that there was still 15,000 of them left against the 300. They said, "No, does this, the, the victory, the, the battle is still uh, hangs in the balance, as far as they, they were concerned. And so they said, "We're not going to give you food unless you're defeated by the 15,000." and then these, they come back in and, and they wipe us out." So they're, they're, they feared reprisal from the Midianites if Gideon and his men uh, were defeated. And so they refused to, to take uh, the side of God when it was risky to do so. So they refused to make this stand against evil, a stand against oppression, a stand for God's plan, a stand for God's people. They said, no, we're not going to risk it. I tell you, I look at passages like this and I just say, Lord, I just hope that by your Holy Spirit, when these moments occur, whatever they may look like, in my little short time in human history, that I will make... This is a hard decision. Nobody minimizes how hard this decision. These guys are making decisions for their wives, making decisions for their children. But the right is very, very clear in the situation. And they're willing to say, no, we'll let 300 bear the brunt of all of this and win the victory. We will not step up even in supplying bread. And I say, Lord, would you help me In these moments, strategic moments in your history, in in human history, that I would never find myself on the side of the men of Sukkoth. And looking at it and saying, okay, weighing it this way, weighing it that way, what's going to be best for me? What keeps me out of danger while everybody else endangers themselves? Rather than looking at and saying in the eyes of God, what is the right thing to do here? And then to do it and let things fall where God decides to, to let them fall. And they will not do that. They wanted everybody else to take the risk. They just wanted the benefits. And, and so what's politically expedient for them and, and that, rather than just what's the right thing to hear, do here and then just to simply do that? Well, Gideon uh, didn't like this. And if you don't think Gideon had some strength... Verse 7, Gideon said to them, For this cause, when, not if, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring those kings with me and when I do, I'm going to tie you to something and I'm going to drag you through the thorn bushes. Don't mess with Gideon when he's, when he's feeling, you know, that he's supposed to step up. And so then he went from there to Penuel. They're still involved in the battle and the pursuit. And, they, and he just spoke the same thing to the men of Penuel, just a little bread for the sake of God's victory and what he wants to do here, the will of God, the plan of God for the sake of, of my men. And they answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And so he spoke to the men of Penuel and he said, when I come back, In peace, and I will come back in peace. I will tear down this tower. And apparently, it had a tower in their town, which was a kind of a big deal to have a tower in your town. It was kind of the thing you'd be proud of in your city. Now, Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them. About 15,000. Verse 10 is where we understand how big their army was initially and then how many people had died. And their armies with them, about 15,000 still alive, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. That's a lot of bodies. And then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and uh, Jogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. And so apparently night came. They set up a camp. They figured they had run far enough. Children of Israel were just happy that they would be out of the land of Israel. They had not counted on Gideon and this 300 continuing the pursuit. And so they surprise attacked them in the middle of the night. Now listen. One of the great things about Gideon is, I mean, he was pretty timid at the beginning, and uh, God had to really encourage his faith and all those kinds of things. But, and we're all so different, and God knows how to get us to a place where he can use us for different things. But once God had Gideon you know, in line with things, he couldn't have chosen a more faithful man. Because this guy could have broken off and said, well, you know, that's enough. I mean, we're ca- he, he's, he's been supplied with a million excuses for stopping, at least 300. I mean, we weren't given bread. And so what can we do, God? You're not supplying bread from even among your people. And we're hot and we're thirsty and we're exhausted. And, and we've really it looks like we've almost broken the back of our enemies and that'll be good enough. He's not satisfied with that. God has given him orders, and he is not going to stop until that victory is won. The Bible says, commit these things to faithful men. Faithfulness in our service to the Lord. Take whatever God has called us to do, do it with all of our heart all the way till the end. Gideon, so much uh, that's commendable in him. And so he surprise attacked them. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, he returned from battle from the accent uh, the ascent of Jerries and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth so they returned back the 300 to the city and they got caught a guy outside of the area and uh, they interrogated him and he wrote down uh, for Gideon the leaders of Succoth and its elders the men that were behind this decision again Gideon is going to judge them but his judgment is very measured he is going to chastise the men who actually made the decision. Not one more, not one less. Very holy in it. And so the elders that were listed by this guy, 77 men, written, their names written down. That was a list you wouldn't want to be on. Because there were no nice. It was all naughty on that list. And then he came to the men of Sukkoth, and he said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna. Ladies and gentlemen, about whom you ridiculed me. Ah, they were mocking him, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your weary men? Oh, they did know they were weary. And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. Taught them a lesson. Man, how would you like to have an elementary school teacher like that? <laughs> So he taught them a lesson by either dragging them through kind of this kind of brush or uh, maybe even putting them in a place where they were kind of scourged uh, with it. But uh, he he taught them a lesson. And the lesson, so that's what he did, but the lesson that he was teaching them was this, is the next time it's your place to step up in God's work and to support what God has called others to do for the advancement of the kingdom of God, you don't get to chicken out. Next time, you step up and do the little part that you can do. Everybody has a responsibility in the body of Christ, and that was the lesson he was driving home uh, to them. We're not a part of, a, of a, a body or a part of the body of Christ even, which is uh, spoken of as a body, no part of the body gets to go by the side and let everybody else do the work. Every part of the body has to do its part in order for us to be victorious. And so he, he taught him a lesson, and, uh, and, and so he did the men of Sukkoth. And then verse 17, and then he tore down the tower of Penuel. He moved on to that city, and he killed the men of the city. Now, when, when, he, when he threatened and really promised uh, chastisement against the men of Penuel, he only spoke about coming back to the city and tearing down the tower. So evidently what happened is he and the 300 men returned, began to tear down the tower, were evidently... Um, attacked by the men of the city and so they uh, attacked them in return and as a result uh, killed the men of the city and he said uh, to Ziba and Zalmunna what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor now this is an event in the history of Uh, between the people of Israel and the Midianites that we don't know anything about. There's nothing in the Scriptures about it. So there was something that happened where the Midianites, probably in one of their forays into the land, sounds like they probably caught a group of Jewish men out in the open, probably farming or unarmed in some kind of a condition, and they just butchered them. And so now he catches the two kings that were behind that slaughter, and so he's going to interrogate them about this event. What kind of men were they who you killed at Tabor? And the two kings, full of you know, bravado and, and all, they said they were as you were, uh, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. They looked just like you. They were good looking, handsome Jewish men. And then Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. These guys killed his, uh, his brothers in some kind of a helpless state, not in battle. And he said, as the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. But what Gideon is facing right now is these two kings are cold-blooded murderers. Say, well, I'm a king. I make decisions like this, and, and uh, I, I can hide behind my title as a king. They were personally responsible for the death of these brothers of of Gideon. It was cold-blooded murder, and according to the law of Moses, Gideon had an obligation in order to fulfill the law of Moses as a kinsman redeemer to rise up and execute judgment, capital crime, against these two kings and execute them for their murder, their shedding of, of innocent blood. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, his oldest, he said, Rise and kill them, but the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. And so what Gideon is really trying to do with his son and calling him to, to kill these two kings is he's, he's actually giving, that, giving him kind of a privileged uh, um, thing to do in order to uphold the law of the land and uh, it would have been a humiliation of these kings to be killed by a youth but if, if, if the boy had done this or the young man had done this for the rest of his life his name would be associated with this great victory that God gave the children of Israel and Gideon is wanting that to happen for his uh, son he'd be known as the boy that executed Zeba and Zalmunna but it was, it was an honor they, that he wasn't ready to, to take in, in that culture, and uh, so he hesitates. And then uh, Ziba and Zalmunna, then they uh, speak up, and they said to Gideon, "'Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength.'" And so they piped up and said, "'Listen, Gideon, don't, don't, do this. don't turn this over to a kid. You're the warrior.'" You go ahead and take us out, and it might be that they felt—I mean, they're pretty battle-hardened guys. They might have felt that it would be a privilege to be killed by the one that had vanquished them, to be killed by the one that had defeated them in army in, in battle, a man as great as Gideon. And and uh, but on the other side of the coin, they would have could have also been concerned that because of the inexperience of the youth, that he'd do a hatchet job, that he'd have to poke them so many times that it'd take them forever to die. And, uh, so, and, and actually what they do here when they speak to Gideon, they kind of insult them here a little bit to get them steamed, uh, so that he'll be, you know, upset enough to pull out the sword and make quick work of them, which is what they wanted to have happen here. And so Gideon arose, he killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on uh, their camels' uh, necks. And so the, it's interesting, we see the crescent moon as a symbol of Islam, recognized all around the world as a symbol of Islam today with the star, And and uh, many uh, flags of Islamic nations will have that crescent. But the crescent, uh, as a symbol, predates Islam by thousands of years. In the ancient world, among the Arab people, a crescent was used... Uh, as a a symbol for them because of their worship of the moon god and and Islam simply incorporated it and so that's why we see this literally 2,000 years before the establishment of Islam is recorded right here in the the scriptures as already a symbol of these uh, Arab nations and then the men of Israel Uh, Said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. They're so grateful for the victory that they say, all right, we want you to become our king and we're willing to establish a dynasty behind you. Your son, your grandson, they'll all rule after you. Gideon very wisely declines and uh, points them back to the Lord and gives the Lord the glory. He said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And then Gideon did have a request of them. He said, you know, if you want to express some thanks to me, then I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. And... uh, for they had golden earrings. These men had wore in battle, not the Jews, but the uh, Ishmaelites. They had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So he says, listen, listen if you want to acknowledge what, what I've done in this whole thing, then give me all the earrings that you took off of, off of the dead bodies. And so they answered and they said, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1700 Shekels of gold, estimated to be between 42 and 70 pounds. Nobody knows for sure, just it's a pretty wide swing, but still, 42 pounds of gold. What's gold going for an ounce right now? So, somewhere between 700 and 1,000, right? Somewhere in there. So it's pretty big, pretty big money. Well, not for you, I know. But anyway, it is for me. And uh, so, the, so the, he got a lot of gold here. And beside the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the purple robes that were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's neck. So all of this went to Gideon. And then what Gideon did with the gold is he made it into an ephod and he set it up in his city of uh, Ophrah and all Israel played the harlot with it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. And so what Gideon did is he took that gold and he fashioned uh, it into uh, kind of a gold image of of an ephod and uh, an ephod was one of the garments uh, that the high priest wore. And, and, uh, and, and so uh, the, the high priest were, was the one through whom God would communicate to the children of Israel if he wanted to communicate something beyond his word. So it kind of represented uh, God's willingness and his ability to speak to his people. And basically what Gideon is doing is, is actually kind of harmless in his own mind. He wants to build kind of a monument to this great thing that God has done. And... Uh, and the whole reason that this victory has occurred is because God revealed his will to us. He was gracious to do that. And, uh, and, and it all. the whole victory, we can ascribe it to his revelation and to his grace, his willingness to speak to us. So he puts this ephod to represent that. The problem is the children of Israel at that time, they just seem to want to find something to worship other than God so they began to worship now this ephod rather than the god behind the ephod and, and it became a a, a stumbling block in, in, uh, in Israel and of course I don't think anybody can doubt the fact that Gideon never intended it to become an idol to Israel but his mistake was that after it did become an idol that he didn't take the thing and just melt it down and and to be done with it. That would have been uh, the best thing uh, to do. And Midian, uh, thus Midian, was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. The defeat was decisive, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And so evidently he lived 40 more years uh, after uh, this particular victory, and... There was quiet in the land and apparently people were faithful to worship God on, you know, some marginally acceptable level during that period of time. But then uh, then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, Gideon, he went and he dwelt at his own house, so he kind of went into a retirement. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring. So, Wow, that poor wife of his. Now... Uh, the, uh, the problem is, he had many wives. This is a, a terrible violation of God's Word. It is so important that when God uses us, whether it is to reach an entire nation for God, to do a miracle... Or to lead someone to the Lord at school or at work. To recognize that very often after being used by God, our greatest danger is immediately after that. Because there is something perverse about our flesh that begins to think that look at how God has used me. And so I don't have to be quite as concerned to be careful about obeying the Word of God as everyone else does. And it is a constant temptation in our lives. So Gideon goes. He walks with God, does great when he's right in the fire of the battle and faith and all of those things. But right afterwards, he sees himself as above the word of God, the commands of the word of God, that he's a little different than everyone else. And so he just starts to multiply wives. And it's just a a gross and staggering violation of the scriptures. I don't know how many wives he had to marry to have 70 Uh, uh, sons here, we don't even know about how many uh, men and women uh, or or, uh, daughters that he had as a result of that probably a lot of wives Uh, and one of the reasons that people didn't he's copying the pagan nations around him, one of the reasons that uh, uh, the common man in those days even in the pagan nations did not have multiple wives is that costs money one wife costs money Okay, no, amen. We've got a group of very wise men in this room. Imagine 20, 30. Wow. So, so you had to really have some wealth to do that. Everyone didn't have the option to do it. He had options to do that, and so his, his heart uh, got shown. Now I'm all embarrassed about that, that comment on everything. I don't know, can I go home tonight? I'm just kidding. I'm thinking, you can. So can I. So... So this terrible violation. And then he's got all these wives. And then in verse 31, he got concubines too. These are women that you, they're kind of like secondary wives that you would just kind of have sex with. And so he had a concubine. You got all those wives, enough wives to have 70 boys? What do you need a concubine for? This is not a, he has lapsed at least into, lukewarmness and carnality and probably just outright backslidden at this point. And it's, it's sad. A lot of trouble is going to come out of, of his failure to walk godly, not just in the middle of his service, but even after his significant service to the Lord maybe it's good that we never retire right in our service to the Lord so he had this concubine who was in Shechem who bore a son whose name was called Abimelech it's going to be big trouble as we'll see next week now Gideon the son of Joash died at a good old age and he was buried in the tomb uh, of Joash uh, his father in Oprah of the Abizarites and so it was after as soon as gideon was dead that the children of israel again played the harlot with the baals and they made baal beareth their god it was almost like they couldn't wait till he died it's just it, it, how quickly they moved right back into the cycle of sin again and thus the children of israel did not remember the lord their god who delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side nor did they show kindness Uh, to the house of Jeroboam, Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for them. So before we leave Gideon, two lessons just on our hearts. The importance of remembering, and I've already stated it probably twice in looking at some of the judges here, and I know at least once related to Gideon. God calls very, very regular people to do extraordinary things for him because when he uses very very ordinary people he ends up getting the glory so you and I must never say no to any thing or any calling of God on our lives Because we are immediately paralyzed by our inability to do this in our own strength. That is by design. And so Gideon teaches us, not many mighty are called, not many noble as Paul put it in the New Testament. God has chosen the weak things, the base things to use, in order that when He uses them that they will not touch the glory, but that God will get all of the glory. And it's important for us because all of us feel that and we just can tend to think that he can't be calling me. Why doesn't he call this brother or this sister over here? They way better than I am at that. His calling is everything. It is the guarantee of success. Don't talk yourself out of anything that He calls you to do. He will add whatever He has to to make us successful in what it is that He's calling us to. And then when He does use us to be careful to stay as obedient to God in the afterglow of the victory as we are when the victory is still in doubt in the physical realm, we tend to be very obedient to God when things look still up in the air. Afterwards, we can become casual about obedience and end up marring our legacy as Gideon does here. Let's stand together. The worship team come forward. That would be great.